And if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you're using our Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1179. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and in a moment, I'll begin reading in verse 17. Today, we are returning to our study of the pastoral epistles. In the past, as a church, we've often used the first weeks of the year of a new year to do a brief topical study. Uh, Traditionally, Pastor Trescar would choose a theological topic and preach three to four sermons on that topic. This year, however, in consultation with him, I'm convinced that we simply need to get back into our study of the pastoral epistles because the issue that is still on my mind and many of your minds I know is the condition of the church, especially in the United States. For that concern, the pastoral epistles are exactly where we need to be. I also need to add something here this morning. I want everyone here to know and everyone who's listening online that this morning I am simply picking up the text of scripture exactly where I left it off in November. My last sermon covered 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 and today's sermon will pick up with verses 19 through 21. It may feel to someone that I've chosen this text to address recent events in a nearby church. I want to assure everyone that I have not done that. This is where we left off. Now, that being said, I will say that the providence and the irony of where we are this morning is not lost on me, and I hope it is not hidden to you. But let us now return to this wonderful letter. First Timothy was written by Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy. Paul had planted a vibrant church in the regional capital of Ephesus, a prominent city on the western shore of what we call today Turkey. Sadly, this church is now in trouble. Elders in the church have gotten into false teaching and are leading the people astray, not just in their theology, but also in their morality. Timothy has been sent to this city to confront these false elders and to strengthen as well the faithful elders who are mentioned in our text today. Chapter 1 of this letter, you might recall, began with Paul commanding Timothy to use Paul's authority to silence the false elders. Chapter 2 of the letter urges Timothy to correct, to correct the worship of the church. It speaks to how we are to pray in worship and what men and women are to be doing during the public worship of the church. Worship is critical to the life of this church and to the life of any church. Chapter 3 gave us qualifications for elders and deacons, rules that, if followed, may have prevented some of these problems. Lastly, chapter 4 describes Timothy's own ministry with such power that it remains today one of, if not the most compelling passage in the New Testament on pastoral ministry. And chapter 4 ends with maybe the most frightening words any pastor or elder can ever hear. Chapter 4, verse 16 reads, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 
Persist in this. Here's what's at stake. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. All this brings us to chapter 5, where Paul begins now to address specific groups of people in the church. He begins with the widows of the church, and then in verse 17, he turns to the elders. Now remember, these weren't just random groups of people in the church. These were some of the main issues this church was dealing with. Last time we looked at verses 17 and 18, and at the honor and even the double honor that good elders should receive. Now today we turn to the discipline of false elders. The leaders of the church are not above the discipline of the church. Please stand then for this reading of God's word. For context, I'll begin in verse 17, but we'll be focusing on 19 through 21. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, whether we acknowledge it or not, we are now in the presence of your son and the elect angels. And so we pray that our hearts would be open to searching, the searching of your word, and that we would come into judgment and bring ourselves into judgment, that we might be searched and known and convicted. We thank you for texts like this that you have put in the word for our good now open our hearts through the Holy Spirit to receive it with joy and do your good work in us. Bring conviction, bring humility, and at the end of all that, bring joy. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In the 1960s, a student activist coined the phrase, quote, the long march through the institutions, end quote, the long march through the institutions. The long march was, of course, a reference to Chairman Mao's long march through China. Mao was the world's greatest mass murderer and the founding father of Chinese communism. Like many student activists in the 60s, this particular Western man believed that the West was hopelessly evil and that only a red revolution could bring healing. However, rather than take the hard military kind of approach that Mao had taken, he and many others like him called for an institutional takeover, a long march through the institutions. Instead of violence, 
He called on his fellow leftists to infiltrate the major institutions of American society and work from within them to bring about the desired Marxist change. Now, I don't think anyone on any side of the political aisle can debate that this strategy has been hugely success successful in our own day. In a very short time, leftists captured not only our national institutions, but also all of the arts, and now finally in our day, the corporations. Today, even going to McDonald's and buying your child a burger means exposing them to McDonald's Living My Truth campaign, where they advocate for social Marxism. I only bring this up in a sermon because I believe it can open a door for you and me. If you have not started caring about institutions yet, start caring. In less than 30 years, an institutional takeover was able to drastically reshape our culture, our laws, and our lives. They did it because they valued and understood the importance of institutions. Well, how about us? Part of my goal in this series is to promote in you and in me a real love for the local and denominational church. And secondarily, for our Christian schools, our seminaries, and all our other institutions. Now, please don't get me wrong. I know that a church is more than an institution. It's a family. We're very much a family here at Grace. And Christianity is more than a social institution. And it's not a political institution. Because Jesus, unlike other religious leaders, is actually still alive today, Christianity is rightly called fundamentally a relationship. Maybe the most exciting thing about giving the gospel to someone is that we get to invite them not just to an institution or a movement, but into a real and living relationship with their Savior. I don't want to do anything today or in this series to take away from the warmth of our faith. However, we need to join the Apostle Paul in what he's trying to do in these letters. Paul is concerned for the institutional integrity of local churches. The pastoral epistles are all about the life of the church with a special emphasis on leadership. Who can be an elder? Who can be a deacon? In our last sermon, we looked at verses 17 and 18, and we discussed the double honor that some elders are to receive. In other words, there are elders in the church that need to be disciplined. We'll see that in a moment. But Paul is aware that there are also faithful elders who should be honored and doubly honored. In today's text, verses 19, 20, and 21, Paul then gives instructions for the disciplining and even the removal of corrupt elders from the church. In chapter 3, you'll remember, Paul has already instructed Timothy that the elders must be above reproach. They will not be perfect, that's not what that means, but they must be known publicly for their integrity of life and their integrity of doctrine. When that is no longer the case, how are they to be judged 
Well, Paul gives us in our text three core principles to follow in the disciplining of elders. Timothy here is charged first in verse 19 to protect their reputations. In verse 20, to expose their scandals. And in 21, to maintain purity in all that he does. So first of all, verse 19, notice with me, Paul calls for the protection of the reputation of elders. He writes, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, this is language, this language of two or three witnesses. This is language that Timothy would have been very familiar with from his Bible. And we heard it today in the readings that Elder Boyajan did. The requirement of two or three witnesses to establish anything was a staple of Torah, of the Old Testament law. Now, remember, back then, there was no paper trail. There was no email trail. There was no camera footage, no DNA evidence. Everything in the world of justice depended on people's verbal testimony and memory. To protect people, Moses taught Israel to only accept the testimony of two or three witnesses. In addition, and I don't know if you picked this up in the reading, in addition, if your testimony led to the death penalty for someone, you had to throw the first stone. In other words, you had to be sure, sure enough that you were willing to be part of their execution. Paul takes that principle from the Old Testament and applies it here to the prosecution of elders and pastors. There needs to be clear evidence of wrongdoing before a trial begins. Elders are not above the judgment of God or the judgment of the church. However, they must be convicted by testimony and not by gossip. Much like what we saw in verses 17 through 18, here again we see that Paul is concerned that the good elders at Ephesus be treated honorably. I think we can all appreciate Paul's concern. After all, it's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy in a crisis to succumb to mob justice. We've seen this in many places in our nation recently. Buildings were destroyed. Businesses were destroyed in riots. People were assaulted and even killed. Not because they had done anything wrong themselves, but because a mob had decided to carry out its own form of justice. Paul is concerned that nothing like this occur in the church in Ephesus. Godly pastors are to continue to receive double honor, and if a charge is brought, evidence must be given. But maybe someone here is saying, what about, pastor, what about a situation in which the elder has done something immoral and there's only one witness. Is Paul here silencing individuals who have witnessed abuse or have witnessed immorality? Not at all. Not at all. The language here is legal, as is the language in Deuteronomy. Paul is not saying that you can't come forward to your church with testimony. Rather, he is saying that a formal trial must and should begin only with sufficient evidence. 
If you've witnessed something here or somewhere else, we encourage you to come forward. In most cases, there will be other witnesses that, like you, were too afraid to say something and will then step forward. In other cases, the church officer, in the face of a direct accusation, even from one person, will often confess or at least begin to own up. In some cases, after one person comes forward, other evidence is found, police records, text messages, emails. In these ways, and in many other ways, the biblical threshold can and often is met. In fact, of all the big cases I'm aware of, God has provided substantial evidence. So Paul is not cover calling here for a cover-up. If you know the Apostle Paul at all, you can't imagine he would want to cover up. Paul did not shy away from anyone he thought was polluting his beloved church. As he said to the Corinthians, the churches were like his children. And like a father with his daughters, Paul is always ready for a fight if need be. But he also knows the life of our Lord Jesus. He has that in mind too, doesn't he? Our Lord was wrongly accused and murdered based on false testimony. All through his ministry, he was falsely accused and slandered. He was called a Samaritan, demon-possessed, a Sabbath-breaker, and a blasphemer. The apostles shared deeply in that same slander. Many of them were killed under the accusation of stirring up an insurrection. With that history before us, we can never allow ourselves to give in to mob justice or gossip or slander. We must pray and seek the truth with all our heart. I think Paul wrote this because he knew that elders and especially pastors are incredibly vulnerable to false accusations and misleading reports. Because we pastors operate almost entirely on reputation, the easiest way to destroy us is to simply to bring into question our integrity. Anyone who has any grudge of any kind against us can so easily disrupt our lives. Because we convict people of their sin and are often involved in cases of discipline, we are very big targets. On top of that, there is, isn't there, an undeniable spiritual element. John Calvin, writing hundreds of years ago, reminds us here of Satan's plan from the Garden of Eden till now. He is always planning to discredit the word of God. And so, yes, of course, he will target elders and especially the pastors of the church. We have to take this seriously as we approach these situations. It is real. Every bit is real as the legal trial itself. But there's one more vulnerability I need to share with you, a very personal vulnerability, a confession, really. You see, the reality is that there will always be fair criticism of me as your pastor and of all our elders. We are always failing. To become an elder is to accept perpetual failure. 
I heard a very experienced pastor say recently that pastoral ministry is, quote, failing people at a rate they can accept, end quote. And so I can firmly say to you that I am not involved in any scandal, but I certainly do come short. And we are vulnerable because at our very best, we still fall horribly short. How easy it would have been. Think about it. How easy it would have been then for Timothy to come into Ephesus and wipe the slate clean. To believe every report and overthrow the entire government of that church. But instead of mob justice, instead of conducting a purge in Ephesus, Paul calls Timothy back to the scriptures he is not to entertain an accusation except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Rather than slander, Timothy is to operate upon testimony. The principle of two witnesses is so deeply embedded in the life of God's church and how thankful we can be that God has given us this teaching. Remember how Jesus sent out his disciples in twos for this very reason. Because Israel needed to hear two witnesses. At Jesus' transfiguration, remember, two witnesses were present, Elijah and Moses from heaven, to testify as to what was happening. And then at his empty grave, we're told very knowingly, very strikingly, that two angels were posted, one at the head and one at the foot, to bear witness to the resurrection. And then finally, in the book of Revelation, we're told that one more time, at the end of time, two witnesses will appear to shed abroad their testimony as to the truth of Christ. It is an enormous tragedy when the leaders of the church, the elders, pastors, and deacons, when they get away with abuse and corruption because of a lack of testimony. I say temporarily, because man's judgment is the lightest of judgments. God will deal with that person. But this verse reminds us of another tragedy. False accusation is a real and present danger to all who occupy office in the church. In light of these two threats, we must ask God and we must trust God to provide sufficient evidence. So first, he is to protect properly reputation. Second of all, notice with me in verse 20, that Timothy is to expose scandal when necessary. Verse 20 reads, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, not to get lost in the weeds here, but we do have a translation issue here that I need to address right now. The ESV reads, as for those who persist in sin. But the word persist is not there in the Greek New Testament. This was the ESV's best attempt to translate what's there, and I'm sure they had every good intention. However, I think it's unhelpful, and it's not the best. It's not even really the normal way of translating this verse. Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying that you can cover up the scandalous behavior of elders so long as they don't persist in it. 
Again, the word persist is not there. Most older versions, like the King James, and even the newer versions since the SV, have gotten it right. They simply put, if they are found guilty, if they are in this sin, then rebuke them publicly. Again, the context here is not some little private sin, the little failures that we all experience. The topic here is a church in crisis, scandalous sin. In Ephesus and today, it usually involves either false teaching, financial, financial misdeeds, or sexual immorality. And what scripture is saying here is that when an elder has been found guilty of such things, they must be dealt with openly. In fact, the word used here, you can underline this in your mind, the word used here for rebuke often is translated to expose. It's a word used of the Old Testament prophets who exposed and preached against the sin of Israel. Closer to home, Paul is telling Timothy and Titus throughout the pastoral letters to expose, to rebuke false teaching and false lives. A key component of their calling is public rebuke. That same exact word, expose, is used in Ephesians 5, verse 11. Paul writes, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. In other words, drag it into the light not for the purpose of gossip, that would be shameful, but rather to strongly rebuke such wickedness. And again, using the same word, our Lord Jesus says these things, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be, here's that word again, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In scripture, we have a beautiful example of this in Galatians chapter 2. In that passage, Paul rebukes the apostle Peter, quote, before them all, in the presence of them all, that is openly. He did this when Peter regressed for a moment and separated himself from Gentile believers. Peter was still struggling with the difference between Jews and Gentiles, differences that had been hardwired into him since his childhood. He, know, he knew Jesus had changed that, but it was a struggle for him. And in a moment of weakness, Peter distanced himself from the Gentile believers. And this was a serious sin. It was a form of false teaching by an elder and it was committed before people. And so to remove that stain, it had to be dealt with publicly. But here's the thing. As much as this might hurt, it can also bear such great fruit. Paul makes that point here, doesn't he? He says, expose it. Why? For gossip? No. He says, expose it so that the rest may stand in fear. In other words, Timothy you may be tempted not to go through with this. It's a lot of work to bring someone into judgment, especially an elder or a pastor. But Paul says it will bear good fruit. 
having been in this situation with others, I have to emphatically agree. Loving, faithful, sober church discipline works, and it helps lots of people. It helps the person who's being exposed, and it causes others to be warned. We can be sure that the Apostle Peter received this rebuke with gratitude and with the spirit of Psalm 141, where the psalmist says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is as oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. In Corinthians, a member of the church there was entrenched in terrible sexual sin. And Paul says that the church is to gather together, publicly remove that person from the congregation. But we're also told that later on, this whole situation strengthened the church and led that person back into repentance and a new life. Again, Paul isn't making this up for the first time. Paul here is simply quoting Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, just as he does throughout this whole section of 1 Timothy. This time he quotes Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 19. Moses calls for judgment in the congregation, and he adds these words, quote, All Israel shall hear about this and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. And again, in Deuteronomy 19, Moses says, And the rest shall hear after your judgment and fear and never again commit any such evil among you. Hiding the sins of elders hurts everyone. It encourages sin. It devastates the victims of the church and it corrupts the whole church. It has to be dragged out into the light so that it can die. John Calvin writes, quote, Let the guilty pastor lead the dance of the condemned, end quote. And Puritan Matthew Poole writes, Let the bandage be as big as the cut. In other words, if the sin is scandalous, if it is public and harms the body, it needs to be dealt with a bandage that fits the size of the wound. And lastly, the ancient church father Chrysostom writes, quote, As it is wrong, it is wrong to condemn hastily and rashly, so not to punish clear offenses is to open the way to others and embolden or encourage them to offend as well. For, he says, it is a much greater scandal that the offense should be known and not punished. For as when sinners go unpunished, many commit crimes. So when they are punished, many are made better. What Chrysostom is saying, I think, is that the cover-up is almost always worse than the scandal itself. In reality, you actually hurt people more by not actually acting in an open and forthright manner by not acting decisively. As I consider this verse with you, I have to wonder why the church continues to violate this clear teaching of Scripture. I think of the damage done to Roman Catholicism in the U.S. because bishops chose again and again and again 
to cover up the scandalous sins of priests. I think of evangelical churches today that demonize victims, operate behind closed doors, and continually protect scandalous pastors and elders. These things are sickening. Indeed, as Chrysostom says, the cover-up, in the end, the cover-up is more damaging to the church than the exposure of the sin. But I also think today of men I know who've repented. I think of a ruling elder that I grew up with, who I knew very closely, not in this church, elsewhere, who sinned scandalously. He stood before his church, he confessed. He immediately left office and he took the full consequences of his actions. When handled with integrity and zeal, these moments can be life-changing and can actually build the church. Behind our reluctance to church discipline of members and officers, behind our reluctance to obey verse 20, I think there is a real lack of faith. We simply don't believe that God can bring good out of this, but he does, he can, and he has promised to do so. And that brings us lastly, thirdly, to verse 21. Paul charges Timothy now in closing in an incredibly solemn way to do everything in this regard with complete impartiality. If we're carefully reading, this verse should cause us to pause in reverence and maybe make sort of the hairs on the back of our neck stand up. Hear it again, verse 21, Paul says so solemnly, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. What Paul does here essentially is to put Timothy under a solemn oath. Of course, Timothy was not present uh, literally physically to take the oath as it was being written. But the formula and the language here is that of a solemn oath. Paul begins by invoking heaven as witness. This is only done in scripture at times of incredible importance. It's a fearful thing to even do. Remember, Paul the Apostle has been in vision. He's been in the throne room in heaven. He has seen the unseeable. He knows the joy and the terror of God's throne. And now, as an apostle, he calls that throne room into view. No more awe-filled word could possibly be given if you have any questions this morning as to how seriously God takes these matters, let this verse decide it for you. To seal the oath upon Timothy, Paul will use three witnesses, all to be found in the throne room of God, the Father, the Son, and the angels around the throne. Again, there is no greater invocation than this. This is, we might say, the biggest hammer Paul owns as God's apostle. Well, the substance of the oath is simple. Timothy is not to prejudge any matter. The ESV is exactly right here. Do not prejudge the matter. Do not make your mind up ahead of time before you see the evidence. 
And then Paul adds, do nothing from partiality. In saying this, of course, Paul aligns himself perfectly with all the scriptures. Exodus 23, 6 reads, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. James 2.1 reads, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Ephesians 6.9 has this warning. Masters, stop your threatening of your servants, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Timothy is to have no favorites. Timothy is to spare no one. He's to cover up for no one. All of that is showing partiality, and God detests that. Sadly, human judgment and human justice has always been partial, hasn't it? Even today, it's true even today, right? The person with the most money gets the best lawyer and gets off just a little easier. In past years, especially if you were black and you were living in the South, you know the standard of guilt was very different. In Roman times, prejudice was actually the norm of the courtroom. Slave owners had all the rights and literally, including killing their own slaves, everything was allowed. Women were not even allowed to testify in a Roman court or to give evidence or to bring a lawsuit. The hallmark of Gentile justice has been and continues to be partiality. And God hates partiality. In fact, his hatred for it is perfect hatred. It's complete hatred because he himself, and this is what we have to understand, he hates it because he himself is impartial. In other words, like all sin, it is not simply a sin. It's not simply naughtiness. Rather, all sin is a direct attack on God himself. Sins are not random rules, but expressions of what is against God, contrary to his image, a perversion of him. God has, in the language of Gerhardus Voss, the indelible right to press his image upon us and sin attacks that right and distorts that image. Perversion of justice is our attempt to deface God's image in us. And it is a direct attack on his person. And when that happens within the church, the attack is not only a sin, but it is also a blasphemy of sorts. The name of God is attached to this perversion of justice, and his name is blasphemed, as Isaiah has said. If we can grasp even a little of this, we can appreciate why Paul felt it appropriate to invoke the awful throne room of God. Just as he had commanded two or three witnesses, now Paul provides three witnesses to what he is to say to Timothy, God the Father, the enthroned Christ, and all the elect angels. Well, I want to leave us this morning in this verse, in verse 21, in the throne room, the judgment room of God. It's good for us to linger there for a moment. 
Timothy needed to be there for this particular moment. At this moment, I think we have the same need. Timothy was a delightful man, a faithful man. The letter begins, remember, with Paul saying that Timothy is a faithful son. But even as a faithful son, and isn't this amazing, that even as a faithful son, he needed to stand for a while, as it were, in the judgment seat and at the judgment seat of Christ. As I leave us there today, I want to suggest a few responses we could share as we linger in this solemn verse and in the intensity of Paul's concern for justice in the church. First of all, if you've been the victim of gross injustice in the church, I hope you can linger in this throne room and find some comfort. No one may have believed you, but in this throne room, there is no partiality. There is no hiding. Go to God in heaven through prayer and be refreshed because through prayer you enter his judgment hall. And he knows it all. God was present for it and God will judge without partiality of any kind. It is deeply refresh refreshing to be spiritually in heaven and know that there is one place in all reality where everything is known and where you are loved and where you are believed. Second, let the elders and pastors of the church, and of course this involves me, let us especially men linger at the judgment seat of Christ that we might learn the wholesome fear of the Lord. Brothers, we need to remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4. Paul writes, quote, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. It is the Lord who judges me. Now that's not Paul dismissing the courts of the church. Paul expects there to be a court within the church. You can see that in these verses. This passage assumes it, demands it really. These verses assume that there will be real judgment, real trials in the local church. Paul is not dismissing church courts or trials, but what Paul is saying and what every elder here especially needs to grasp, but really all of us, is that we are to become so transfixed and overwhelmed by the judgment of God that man's trials have lost their weight. Brothers in Christ, the pastoral scandals happening around us originate in that minister's utter contempt for the fear of the Lord. Above all, we have a fear of the Lord problem, not a process problem in the PCA and around this nation. And so today we see ministers giving the most pathetic excuses for their behavior, excusing and accusing. We see them stepping away for a few months and then returning to ministry. Others present themselves as simply too big to fail, too important to the work of God. 
And with every word, what they are really showing is that they have never been with Paul and Timothy in the presence of the living and impartial God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The scriptures are clear. The standard for elders is above reproach. So yes, emotional affairs with female congregants, financial misdeeds, an inability to be around women because you can't keep your hands to yourself, the inability to reasonably guard your speech, sustained and abusive styles of leadership, a love for provocative and inappropriate language. Yes, all these things obviously are disqualifying. But don't you see, here's the real tragedy that I have to say this. For had the elders of the church been regularly in the presence of Christ, really present with Paul and Timothy in this place of judgment, we would have known this already. And had we judged ourselves, elders, 1 Corinthians 11, truly we would not have been judged. So elders and pastors, let us judge ourselves in the presence of God. And so the whole church will be built up and so much time and damage will be avoided. And lastly, let us all together conclude with a word of encouragement. Let us all go, elders and people, to the place of our ultimate judgment, to a hill far away. The cross is the ultimate evidence of all this, isn't it? God's refusal to cover up sin meant that his son must go to the cross for us. He cannot make a deal behind closed doors because he happens to like us or is just feeling merciful today. Nor, as some have falsely dreamed, does he forgive us because we're just so likable or because he foresees our good deeds and loves us for their sake. No, the law of God, which is the expression of his person, must be fulfilled perfectly. His law is him. His law is in him. At its deepest level, it is not a something, but a someone. And that someone is written into the very fabric of reality. It is, as Lewis said, the deep magic of Narnia. And so for real justice and life to come, all distortions must be destroyed and removed, and all debts must be paid. The cross then, the cross, is God dealing impartially with your sin. No excuses, no back doors. Jesus drinks the whole thing down. The cross, the sending of his son to die that horrible death is the ultimate expression of his impartial judgment. Had any other way been possible, would he as a father not taken it? When Jesus, for our sakes, asked him in prayer, if it is possible let this cup pass from me. But no, it was not possible. All the pain, all the rejection, all the wrath, all the torture, Jesus received exactly what you deserve. And then he said, it is finished. In another of the great ironies of our faith, the impartial judgment of God turns out to be, in the end, music to our ears, good news, what secular man takes as a negative 
turns out to be our only hope. And so shout for joy this morning because our God is an impartial judge. This cross, this judge is a comfort to the ears of the helpless victim. It's a warning to the ears of a corrupt leader and it is the best of news, the good news for every truly repentant sinner. Aren't you glad that God is impartial? Go out rejoicing this morning because Christ's death for you is the fullness of justice. Justice satisfied. When declared innocent by such a judge, there can be no retrial. There can be no painful fear. God as impartial judge at the cross is still the best news the world can ever hear. Amen. Let's pray. Father, now we turn our hearts to this table where you show us what you have just told us through the preaching of your word. Open our hearts and minds to receive it with joy so that your word read and taught and now your word portrayed in sacrament would enter deeply into our hearts and transform us according to the image of your dear son in whose name we pray. Amen.